0: Please turn with me to Ephesians chapter two. We'll be looking at the first three verses. and we're by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. Please bow with me in prayer. Oh, Heavenly Father, we do ask for help this morning. What a weighty matter before us to consider our past outside of you, to consider the state of those this very moment who don't know you, I ask that you would give me help as I present this truth, and we ask for the Spirit's help in in opening the eyes of our hearts to see these things, to marvel at your grace and your mercy, your sovereign grace and your sovereign mercy in our lives. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. There's one overwhelming message in verses 1 through 7 of this chapter. And this message is summarized in verses 8 and 9. He says, For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God. Not a result of works, so that no one may boast. Again, this could be the summary statement of verses 1 through 7. And Paul is communicating two foundational truths in this statement. First, that Christians are saved by grace through faith. And secondly, that grace cannot be earned. We can summarize this by saying that salvation is by grace, not works. Now, why would Paul need to communicate such a basic truth to the saints in Ephesus? Paul communicates this because as basic as this truth is, it is often not very clear. There are many Christians that need to be reminded of this on a daily basis. It's easy to slip into this sort of mentality which says, the moment I sin, I'm no longer saved. There's no way that I can be saved. I've sinned against God, and I feel doomed, as though it was your good works, your obedience, that saved you in the first place, or that keeps you saved. Paul says salvation is a gift, not a result of works, that no one can boast. There's another sense in which Christians can fall into trusting in works for salvation. And this temptation is is, is especially true for, for new believers. Many, if not most, new believers don't really understand much of the details behind how salvation really works. All they know is that they they heard the gospel and desired to trust in Christ. So in their mind, they made the right decision to believe in Jesus for salvation. And this can lead to a sort of thinking which says, I had enough sense to trust in Jesus. But this can actually be a works-based position. I am saved because I was smart enough or good enough to trust in Jesus. The the thing that distinguishes me from unbelievers is that I had the sense to make the right decision and they did not. But if that's the case, grace is actually earned by making the right choice, the, the good work of making the proper choice. And you can boast because you made a better choice than unbelievers. But Paul says salvation is a gift, not of works, so that no one can boast. And perhaps someone here today is thinking, I am saved and that's exactly how I was saved. I heard the gospel and chose to respond to it in faith and repentance. Are you saying that I never made a conscious decision to follow Christ? No, that's not what I'm saying. You did make a conscious decision to trust in Jesus. But the question is why? Why did you suddenly decide to follow Christ? Was it because of your wisdom and your understanding? Well, was it because you were good enough to make the right decision? Why does a person decide to follow Christ? The answer to that question has monumental consequences. If we say we made the right choice to follow Christ because we were smart enough or wise enough to make the right decision, we limit salvation to the wise and we rob God of His glory. If we say that we made the right decision to follow Christ Because we were good enough. We were good enough people to make good choices. We limit salvation to the the so-called good people, and we rob God of His glory. And in both of those answers, salvation is essentially by works. The works of being smart enough or good enough to choose to follow Christ. And in both of these answers, there is an underlying assumption that, that man has enough goodness in him, in and of himself, to choose Christ. But is this true? There are some who would argue that we didn't really suffer anything from the fall. Maybe Adam left us an example of sin, but, but there's nothing within our natures that make us sinful. And some would argue that that the fall did affect us some, but there is still enough remaining goodness in us in order to make the right decision to follow Christ in and of ourselves. But What Paul argues here in Ephesians is that we don't have enough goodness in us to make the right choice of following Christ on our own. In fact, he argues we don't have an ounce of goodness in us. And someone may say, why not? Well, to answer this question, we we need to understand what our spiritual condition was before Christ. In the first three verses of this chapter, Paul does exactly that. He reminds believers what their condition was before Christ. And this serves two purposes. For some, this is new teaching. For example, new believers will read this text and learn something of their true condition before Christ that they never knew before. But for others, this is nothing new. You know the true darkness of your condition before Christ, and if that is you, this is a sobering reminder to you. You need to remember what you were before Christ, not to wallow in it. Not to think of it as the old glory days. Not to be in despair, but to remember the mighty, sovereign work that God did in your life. So what does Paul say about the condition of believers before Christ? And by the way, this also means that if you are not a Christian today, this is your condition right now. Paul says before Christ, we were spiritually dead. Verse number one. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked. Now notice that Paul did not say you were sick. He did not say you were drowning. He did not say you were almost dead. He said you were dead. And What exactly does this mean? Well, he gives more info about this death that clarifies it for us. He says, you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked. And the word trespasses has to do with with crossing over boundaries that should not be crossed. And the word for sins there means missing the mark. But both of these words essentially mean transgressing God's law, which is sin. But the emphasis here is not on the specific acts of sin committed, but but rather the fact that unbelievers by nature are sinners. MacArthur puts it this way. The the Greek case here is locative of sphere. This indicating the sphere or realm in which something exists. We were not dead because we had committed sin, but because we were dead in sin that is the realm we existed in in this context trespasses and sins does not refer simply to acts but first of all to the sphere of existence of the person apart from god you have a realm of sin in the realm that believers live in a new nature And before Christ, we lived, we were confined to the realm of sin. So MacArthur goes on, committing sinful acts does not make us sinners. We commit sinful acts because we are sinners. There's a distinction. And Christ states this very clearly in the Gospels. He says in Matthew 12, 35, a good man out of the good treasure of his heart brings forth good things. And an evil man out of the evil treasure brings forth evil things. Evil deeds don't make the heart evil. An evil heart leads to evil deeds. And he says it again, Matthew 15, 19. For for out of the heart come evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false witness, slander. Man does not commit those sins and then receive an evil heart. No, those evil come from an evil heart. So when Paul says you were dead In the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, he is saying that you were spiritually dead in the realm of sin. You were spiritually dead in the sphere of sin. You were dead to God and all spiritual things, and you were living in the sphere of sin. You were sinners. That's who you were. That's what defined you. But how did we get that way? Did God create us to be that way? No. It was through Adam's sin. Adam, as the, the representative of, of all mankind, sinned against God in the garden and, and received a corrupt nature which, he, which made him spiritually dead. And Adam and Eve then conveyed the corrupted nature to all of their descendants so that each and every person born of man and woman is born spiritually dead in their sins, living in the realm of sin from birth. And as I've said many times, this is why you don't have to teach little children to sin. It's in their hearts. And when they get old enough, it begins to come out. That's called a sinful nature, which was passed down from Adam. And we were so dead in our sins that we could not seek after God. What does Paul say in 1 Corinthians? But the natural man does not receive the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness to him. Nor can he know them, because they are spiritually discerned. The natural man, in other words, the spiritually dead man, does not and cannot receive the things of the Spirit of God, because they are spiritually discerned. Dead men have no discernment. Spiritually dead men have no spiritual discernment. It is impossible for a spiritually dead man to see his need for Christ, to desire Christ as a savior, and decide to follow after him. Spiritually dead men don't make decisions to trust Jesus for salvation, no matter how smart they are, that they are incapable of doing so. To telling a spiritually dead man to trust in Jesus for salvation is like going to a graveyard. And telling the dead bodies there to live again. Go try that and see where it gets you. They cannot hear you because they are dead. And if they could somehow hear you, they would have no power to raise themselves up again. A dead man has no power or ability to make himself alive again. And they do not respond to people telling them to do so. When I worked EMS, you would sometimes get a call, perhaps for someone not breathing or they're, or they're not waking up. And you, you arrive on scene and you get all of this fancy gear. You get your defibrillator and your, your drug box and your junk bag and all of these, these gadgets that you have. And you, you rush into the house and you see a person lying on a bed. And you go to lift them off the bed, to put them on the floor, to, to try to resuscitate them. And, and the moment you grab them to put them onto the floor, you notice something. They're stiff as a board. What's that? They're gone. Rigor mortars has set in. They've been dead. The soul has departed from the body. So what do you do in that situation? Do you try to resuscitate? No. Why not? Because you know that no matter how much electricity you put through their body, their heart is not going to beat again. No matter how many drugs you push through their veins, their heart won't beat again. You could intubate them and you could inflate their chest with with air to try to give them oxygen, but it will do no good. Why? Because there's no life there. No outward stimulus from man can make a truly dead person live. And the same is true for those who are spiritually dead. No amount of outward stimulus from man can make a spiritually dead man live. No amount of facts and logic make a spiritually dead man live. No number of tricks and gimmicks can make a spiritually dead man live. No amount of emotional music and emotional altar calls can make a spiritually dead man live. Charm cannot make a dead man live. Fancy speech cannot make a dead man live. There is nothing that we can do that can make a dead man live. And yet this was our condition before Christ. Dead in our trespasses and sins. Not sick in our sins, not drowning in our sins, but spiritually dead in our sins. Dead with no hope of making ourselves alive. We did not even know we were spiritually dead. And if we did know, we would not have cared. And if we did care, there was nothing we could do about it. We were dead We were dead, and it showed in our lives. Notice Paul continues, you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked. In Scripture, walking in something indicates one's conduct or lifestyle. Paul is saying that, that you were dead in the realm of sin, and your conduct reflected that reality. In other words, you, you had a sinful nature, and it showed because you lived in sin, you, you walked in sin. That was the manner of your lifestyle. And this does not mean that everyone was as bad as they were could have possibly been before Christ, God restrains even unbelievers from being as wicked as they could be. But no matter how moral you thought you were before Christ, the reality is that you were spiritually dead and were living in sin. And Paul is going to press this point much farther. He is going to show what we were doing as spiritually dead sinners. He's going to prove to us Even farther, that spiritually dead people don't follow Christ. They don't seek after God. So what were we doing when we were spiritually dead? And also, if you are spiritually dead right now, if you don't know Christ right now, this is going to be a description of what your life is, of what you are doing. Paul gives us three things. Number one, before Christ, we were following after the world. He says you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world. And in this context, the world is used to speak of the the culture, the systems, and, and values and principles that are opposed to God, everything in this world that is opposed to God, the the thinking and behaving and acting that is contrary to God. And this is so contrary to God that all throughout Scripture, we are constantly told to love. Love God. Love your neighbor. Love even your enemy. But there's one thing that God says, don't you dare love. What is that? Do not love the world. Or the things of the world. In fact, if you love the world, the love of the Father is not in you, he says. You see, we were not attempting to follow God, we were not seeking for Christ. We were busy following the course of this world, following that which is opposed to God, being friends of the world, which James says makes us enemies of God. There's no unbeliever who who is seeking after Christ. No, he's following after the course of the world. He's following after everything that is opposed to God. This is what you and I were doing before we became Christians. But that's not all we were doing. Secondly, before Christ, we were following Satan. Paul goes into verse 2 following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. Who is the prince of the power of the air? That is the devil, Satan. Before Christ, we were under the influence and guidance of Satan. We were following after Satan. Now, some may object to this and say, although I was an unbeliever, I was never one of those crazy devil-worshipping people. Ian Hamilton puts it this way. Many are unwitting dupes of the devil. Others are willing disciples of the devil. So so maybe you were not a willing disciple, but if not, you were an unwitting dupe. Perhaps you never knowingly followed Satan, but as you followed the course of this world, you followed Satan's lead. Listen, there is no religious neutrality in this world. Either you follow God or you follow the devil. There's no middle ground. Everything that is against God in this world, even false religion, is pro-Satan. So much so that in 1 Timothy 4, Paul calls false doctrine doctrines of demons. Oh, this must be some really bad doctrine. This must be some really, really bad stuff that that talks about Christ, right? What doctrines was he talking about? Forbidding marriage. Forbidding foods that were clean. Those, what we would call simple, not even major false doctrines. And Paul says even those things are doctrines of demons. Why? Because they are lies. And where do lies come from? Father of lies, who is the devil. Either we follow God or Satan. And when we were dead in our sins, we were unable to follow God, which means we followed after the devil. And, and Paul adds, to, to, to clarify this even more, he says, The Spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. So in other words, there are sons of disobedience right now. They live in disobedience, and, and, and there's a spirit at work in their lives. And what is that spirit? The devil. So when we were following after the world, we too were sons of disobedience, living in rebellion to God, which means that the devil was at work in our lives. We were following after him not seekers of God, followers of the devil. That was your condition. You look at those those other people out there who worshiped the devil, and you said, I was never as bad as them. Well, you weren't as blatant as them. But you too followed after the devil. You were not a God seeker, but a devil follower. Let that sink in. This was your condition. And if you are not following Christ right now, you're you're thinking that you're following yourself. You think you're the, the, the commander of your ship, the master of your own universe. No, you're following after the lead of the devil. And thirdly, before Christ, we were following the flesh. Verse number three among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind. Now, first of all, I want you to notice this transition in Paul's language. In verses 1 and 2, Paul writes to the Ephesians, you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked. And now in verse 3, he writes, among whom we all once lived. What is Paul doing here? Paul was a Jew writing to Gentile, Ephesian converts, and he was letting them know their spiritual condition before Christ. And then, lest they think that Jews by birth were in a better situation, he turns it on himself and the entire Jewish nation. And he says this applies to all mankind, Jew and Gentile alike, even though the Jews were were the privileged people of God. Given the law, circumcised as babies, their spiritual condition at birth was no better. Paul says we all once lived in the passions of our flesh. It does not matter what your ethnicity is. It does not matter who your parents are. You were born spiritually dead and you walked in sin from birth. Look what Paul says about our condition here in the flesh. He says, before Christ, we lived in the passions of our flesh. Carrying out the desires of the body and the mind. Hamilton summarizes this statement by saying, what controls the unconverted life is not the revealed wisdom and grace of God, but the desires of the flesh and of the mind. And these desires have one purpose. self Gratification. Before Christ, we were slaves to self. Everything was about us. But, but I helped old ladies across the street. You did it for a selfish reason. Maybe to make yourself feel good. Maybe, to, maybe to, to make yourself look good to others. Everything that you did was for yourself. Why? Because none of it was done for the glory of God. You were a self seeking, self-pleasing person before Christ. You were not seeking a God. You were not seeking the Savior. You were not seeking Jesus Christ. You were seeking to gratify your sinful passions. That was your life before Christ. And our condition before Christ was awful spiritually dead and dominated by the world, the devil, and our flesh, walking in a lifestyle of sin as sons of disobedience. And because of this, dear friends, we were in grave danger. Paul concludes verse 3 by saying, And we were by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. Calvin said, Children of wrath are those who are lost and who deserve eternal death. Wrath means the the judgment of God, so that the children of wrath are those who are condemned before God. And, and, And Paul says, We were this by nature. We were born under the wrath and judgment of God from our mother's womb, from conception. You think, Well, what if a person live the perfect life, if that were possible, would they, would they still be under God's wrath? Yes. Why? Because they're born in the realm of sin. They're born sinners. Again, we are, we, we are not sinners because we sin, but we sin because we are sinners. We are born sons of disobedience, and therefore, by nature, we are children of wrath. By nature, we are spiritually dead sinners living in sin. And so by nature, we are children of wrath, those who are under the wrath of God. In the language of Edwards, the the bow of God's wrath was bent. The, The arrow was made ready on the string and justice pointed the arrow directly at our hearts. And if at any moment God would have released that arrow, it would have pierced our hearts for all eternity. This was your condition. You are sitting duck with a sniper rifle of God's wrath pointed at your chest. And just at any moment, He could have pulled the trigger and blasted you to eternity, an eternity of His wrath. This was your condition. This was your state before Christ. Dead in sin, therefore sinners by nature, following after the world, following after Satan, following after the flesh, and therefore under the judgment of Almighty God. But because we were dead in our sins, we we could not discern spiritual things, meaning we could not see our need for a Savior We could not see Christ as the Savior, and therefore we could not respond to the gospel in faith and repentance. And therefore, we could not be saved from God's wrath, and yet we sit here saved. How on earth did this happen? There was nothing we could do. We didn't even know that something needed to be done, and yet we sit here today as believers. How is this the case? We were dead. We couldn't seek Christ, and yet we know Christ. How is this the case? Verse number four, but God, that's one of the greatest statements in Scripture, that this was your condition, and it wasn't something that you did, it was but God but God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which He loved us, not because of your decisions, not because of what you've done, but because He is rich in mercy, because of the great love with which He loved us. Even when we were dead in our trespasses, He made us alive together with Christ. We're not going to expound this verse today. But I want to leave you with this gospel truth. God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, made us alive when we were spiritually dead. We were not able to do anything. And yet his love and his mercy compelled him to raise us from the dead. God did what only he had the power to do. I want you to picture Jesus standing outside of Lazarus' tomb and he says, Lazarus, arise. And that dead body recognizes that divine power. And it raises from the dead and walks out of the tomb. That's what happened to you and I. We were dead. We were like Lazarus. We couldn't raise ourselves from the dead. But the power of God said, live. And so we did. And we saw our need for a Savior. And we turned to this mighty Savior and was saved. So here's the answer to our question. Why did you decide to trust in Jesus for salvation? Why did you decide to follow Christ? Because though you were dead in your sins and trespasses, God made you alive. Though we had a sinful nature, God sent the Holy Spirit to change our nature, to give us spiritual life that we could respond to the gospel in faith and repentance. Does this not bring new meaning to verses 8 and 9? For by grace you have been saved through faith. Listen to these words This is not your own doing. It wasn't a good decision that you made. It wasn't a smart decision that you made. That's not what saved you. This was God's doing. You were dead. You were helpless. It is the gift of God, Paul says, not a result of works. There was nothing you could do so that no man can boast. Salvation is not the result of making good decisions to follow Christ. Salvation is not the result of being wise enough to follow Christ. Salvation is the result of God taking spiritually dead sinners and raising them from death to life. This is not your own doing, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. In other words, so that God alone receives the glory. How does God alone receive the glory when we trust in Jesus for salvation? Because we were unable to do so unless he raised us from the dead. It was all his work. What did we just read? No man can come to me unless what? The Father draws him. You could not come to Christ until God raised you from the dead, drawing you to your sweet Savior. The gospel call is for sinners to turn to Christ for salvation. This is not a call for you to say, well, I guess I can't do this because I'm spiritually dead. I can't, I can't trust in Jesus. I can't actively do that. That's not, that's not the point. The gospel call is for sinners to turn to Christ for salvation. If you don't know Christ today, the call is for you to trust in this Savior and turn away from your sins. Well, well, how do you know that God has made me alive? Well, if you respond to the gospel with faith and repentance, that is the evidence that God made you alive. Because if he did not make you alive, you would hear this and you would walk away not remembering any of it. So yes, we must call sinners to faith and repentance. But understand, dear friends, unless the Lord takes that dead spirit and makes it live, those words are falling upon death ears. Have you ever thought about the darkness of your past in this way? Dead. Not seeking Christ. Following Satan. Following the world. Following the flesh a son of disobedience, under the wrath of God with no way of saving yourself and yet you were this helpless creature. God in his sovereignty gave you spiritual life and saved you from his own wrath. What is Paul doing here? Why does he give us such such wonderful truth? Remember, these are the indicatives who we are. And this will lead to the imperatives. What is commanded of us? When when God says, obey Him. When, When God says, love your wife and disciple your children. When God says, work as unto the Lord. He is saying those things within the context of what He did for you. You were dead. You were helpless. You were on your way to hell. And He sovereignly rescued you from that. And He says, now obey me. We should be the most willing servants in the Lord, in the world. What Paul said in Romans 12 should ring true for us. I beseech you by the mercies of God make yourself living sacrifices. This is your your reasonable service. Is this not our reasonable service to to be living sacrifices to the God who would save us from His own wrath by sovereignly raising us from the dead? But also, this should humble us. This should absolutely humble us. When you really begin to grow as a Christian and see progress in your life, you can be tempted to think that you are somehow better than others. What's wrong with that person? Doesn't he see that his life is a mess because he won't follow Christ? I've told him that a thousand times. You come to me complaining again because your life is a mess, and I told you to turn to Christ and you won't do it. What's wrong with you? I made the choice to, to follow Christ and look what it has done for my life. You need to do the same. Why can't you make the decision that I made? You hear that? What is that? That's a lack of understanding of why you're saved. You were a spiritually dead sinner serving the world of the flesh and the devil on your way to hell and God sovereignly gave you spiritual life. Let that humble you. You did nothing to earn your salvation. Just like Lazarus did nothing to be raised from the dead, God did the work. You are simply a recipient of God's grace and his mercy and his love, and that should humble you to your core. All glory be to God. Praise God from whom all blessings flow. But also, let this be a reminder. Of the spiritual state of unbelievers. The the spiritual conditions that we were once in is the same dark condition that, that unbelievers are in at this very moment, perhaps your children, perhaps your relatives, perhaps your co-workers, perhaps your, your neighbors, the, the people driving up and down the street, the people walking in downtown Holland, the, the, the darkness that was your condition is their condition right now. They are dead in their sins, unable to discern spiritual things. They are dominated by the world, the flesh, and the devil. They are walking in sin as sons of disobedience. And because of this, they are under God's wrath. And the bow of God's wrath is indeed bent at them right now. And the arrow is made ready on the string. And justice is pointing the arrow exactly at their hearts at any moment, if God releases that arrow, it will be made drunk with their blood for all eternity. Should we not pity those in that condition? Should we not weep and mourn for those in that condition? Should we not have a, a great burning zeal for, for those in such a wretched state as that? What can we do? After all, I've already said, it takes the power of God to raise them from the dead. So so what can we do? We're We're not the power of God. What does Paul say about the gospel? It is the power of God unto salvation. This means that God uses the proclamation of the gospel by weak vessels such as you and I to raise sinners from their spiritual death and give them new life in Christ. And if this is true, and it is, how zealous should we be to proclaim this death-raising truth as far and as wide and as often as we can And if this is true, and it is, should we be not willing to even suffer and sacrifice, to sacrifice time, sacrifice money, sacrifice resources, sacrifice reputation in order to proclaim this glorious message that raises dead sinners to new life? And how should we pray for unbelievers, to the God who calls forth like Jesus did to Lazarus and says, Arise! How should we be, be pleading for unbelievers in our families and in our communities and in our, in our workplace? How should we be pleading for unbelievers in Holland and all over the world? That, 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 that the God who, who sovereignly plucked us from the fire would do the same for others. And lastly, if sinners are spiritually dead, and the only means that we have for rescuing them is God using the proclamation of the gospel, then how careful should we be to keep this glorious gospel untainted from the world? You know how happy the devil is when when Christians say, I won't deny the gospel, but I'll just change it. and Remove the power. Remove the power. We ought to be so careful to to preserve this truth untainted by the world and to trust no other means. If any other means of trying to save souls besides the gospel comes into the church, it needs to be burned with fire. This is the only message. We must proclaim it faithfully. If men are spiritually dead and God uses the gospel to make them alive, we must Faithfully proclaim this one and only gospel as it is written in Scripture. No compromise. No cleverness. Faithfulness. Oh dear friends, may we be committed to faithfully proclaiming the only message used by God to rescue sinners from spiritual death and grant them eternal life. And may we remember Soberness, with joy, and with gratitude to God that this has already been done for you and I. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, you are so gracious and so merciful. Not only did we hate you as unbelievers. but we served the world which was opposed to you. We served Satan who was opposed to you. We served our flesh which was opposed to you. We were your enemy. And yet you saved us. Not because of what we've done, but because of the great love with which you loved us. May this move us, Father, May this move us to to greater and greater obedience to You and greater love for You and greater service to You. And may this move us to give You glory in all things. And may this move us to see others come to You through the proclamation of the Gospel. Oh, Father, we beg of You that not one person would leave here today unchanged by this truth. And if there is any person here today who who does not know you, Father, we ask that you would raise them from death to life at this very moment, that that hearing these words today, they would be able to respond to the gospel with faith and repentance, and, and may the angels in heaven rejoice, and may we rejoice with them over a soul being saved. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.